Got a question for you? How many of you like to shop at Costco? Any Costco folks? I am a Costco junkie. Uh, I am a Costco crazy person. I love the Costco. And what is the best part? For those of you, my fellow Costcoites, uh, what is the best part about shopping at Costco? Free samples? Is that what I heard? Free samples. If you are not a Costco shopper, you have got to know this. They have free samples every day. And you can try all kinds of new foods and all kinds of new stuff. And it's great. I mean, th- here's the thing about Costco samples. It is so well known and so prevalent that uh, <laughs> they actually have like on Weight Watchers, like a point value assigned to Costco samples. Like so if you go to Costco, you have to charge yourself like three points for just walking through the store and trying the samples. And where you go, like in different parts of the store, they have different things that they're sampling. For example, if you're in the frozen food section, you may be able to sample chicken nuggets. Uh, you may be able to sample coffee or chai tea. Uh, you may be able to sample the latest chip, uh, guacamole. Uh, you could sample uh, spinach article, I mean, all kinds of stuff. It's, throughout the store, there's all kinds of things to sample. And so one day I'm at Costco and I'm going to sample something. I'm going to try something for the first time. And it was lobster bisque. Ooh, right? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I've never had lobster before. I've never had lobster bisque before. And so I thought, I, this is my opportunity to try lobster and lobster bisque. So I go over to the, the sweet sample lady. I'm thinking, my dad likes lobster. I know a lot of people who like lobster. And I'm thinking, just because I've never tried before, I, you know. And, and here's the thing. I don't try new foods very often. I'm very, very picky. Uh, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this. So I go up to the nice little sample lady and she tells me, uh, would you like to try some lobster bisque? Yes, I would. And so she hands me a little sample cup. I said, I've never had lobster before. She goes, I think you're going to like it. It's kind of a sweet meat. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So I take the little sample spoon, put it in the little sample cup, take the little sample of lobster bisque with the little piece of lobster on it, put it in my mouth. And I think to myself, if by sweet you mean disgusting, then yes, this is the sweetest meat I've ever had in my life. Because it was gross. It was disgusting. It was terrible. I hated it. I'm like, (laughs) find the nearest garbage can and throw the rest in it. Because it was nasty. It was awful. It just, here's the thing. It didn't meet my expectations at all. I had this expectation. I'm going to, you know, family loves it. People love it. I know people, you got to try lobster, you know. and, And it did not meet my expectations whatsoever. I should have. Well, here's the thing. Sometimes we build something up in such a way. Yeah, and, and, and we, we tell people. How many of you have ever told somebody about a restaurant or a movie or a TV show? You've told them it's like you've got to try this place or you've got to watch this movie or you've got to see this show and you build up the hype and the excitement and the expectations and it's like, oh, you're going to love it. You're just going to love it. And then they go to the restaurant or they watch the show or they watch the movie and you come back to them later like, hey, how did you like that place? And they're like, it was okay. Okay. Are you crazy? It's like the greatest place ever. I mean, it's like Disney World for food. I mean, come on. It was okay. Or you, you, they watch the movie and like, oh, it was all right. You know, not really my thing. It's like, no, it's a great. It changed my life. It changed my life. And it was okay. And then you feel like an idiot. <laughs> you feel like a moron because you're like built this thing way up for them. And, and they're like, no, it was all right. <sighs> you start to question your friendship with them. 
How could we even be friends if, you're not, if your life wasn't changed by this movie? You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about. You know, when it comes to expectations, you know, when, pe- when something doesn't measure up to our expectations, when, when something doesn't measure up to other people's expectations, we, we get disappointed. And, and it's frustrating. Well, Jesus, in the book of Mark, chapter 2, uh, shattered the expectations of the religious leaders around him. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We started a brand new series last week on the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospel, it is simply a biography of the good news about Jesus. And there are four of them in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we are looking at the second one, Mark's Gospel, Mark's biography of Jesus. John Mark, as his full name was, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Peter, and he wrote down the stories that Peter told about Jesus and the teachings that Jesus gave. He wrote down all those stories, uh, and he uh, compiled them into this biography. And so uh, this biography, this gospel, is 16 chapters long, and there are 16 weeks from last week up until Easter Sunday. And so we're going to look at a chapter a week leading up till Easter Uh, It's very convenient that way. Um, But uh, in order to do that, we've got to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time. Uh, So uh, I told you last week, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. uh, And that's exactly what it is. So last week we covered chapter one. And this week we're going to cover chapter two. Uh, Just so you remember, uh, in your bulletin is a suggested reading plan for the week. uh, Monday through Friday that you can read the following chapter coming up. So this week we'll read chapter three. Uh, leading up to next week's uh, message about chapter 3. But today we're talking about expectations. If you brought a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 2. If you didn't bring one, you can grab one out of the chair in front of you. It's on page 708 of that Bible. Uh, Or you can use your favorite app on your smartphone or tablet uh, to uh, follow along as well. And so Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 2, has been baptized uh, as he was in Mark chapter 1. He was baptized Uh, which was about 70 miles from his hometown of Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth, uh, but he set up shop, basically. Uh, The headquarters for his ministry were in Capernaum, and that's where Jesus is. Uh, He is in Capernaum. And and wherever Jesus goes, he is being flocked to by people, like lots and lots and lots of people. Everywhere Jesus goes, he is followed by people crowds of people his fame and notoriety are growing tremendously and so everywhere Jesus goes he is being mobbed by people and he ends up at a house in Capernaum and they're not sure whose house it was it may have been um, Jesus's own house the house that he lived at when he was in Capernaum or it might have been um, might have been Simon's house uh, Simon Peter's house Uh, But anyway, he's in a house in Capernaum and lots and lots of people are coming uh, and surrounding him and and flocking to him and following him. And we get to uh, the story uh, in Mark chapter 2 where some men come to Jesus carrying their friend who was paralyzed on a mat. And so look at verses 4 and 5 with me. It says, uh, since they could not get to him, to, to get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if that's exactly what the men who lowered him down. I mean, the the roof is made of mud and thatch, uh, and and it wasn't very thick. It was was 
thick enough to support their weight, but they dug through it and they lowered. I mean, could you imagine you're sitting in this house listening to Jesus, every word. All of a sudden, the ceiling rips open and here comes a guy dropping down uh, on a mat who's paralyzed. And Jesus sees the faith of, their, of, his, of this man's friends and says, son, your sins are forgiven. And again, the guys in the roof are like, wait, what? Sin's forgiven? Make him walk. That's what we want to see. You know, we want to see you make him walk. Well, there are some teachers of the law, uh, some experts in the law who are standing nearby. And, and everywhere Jesus goes, not only is he mobbed by people, but he's being watched by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And uh, they're, they're, they start thinking something to themselves. Look at verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. No one can forgive sins but God. Only God can forgive sins. And that should give you a clue as to who Jesus is and his identity. Verses 8 through 10. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this, uh, that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, could you imagine being one of the <laughs> teachers of the law? And why are you thinking these things? Uh, who's he talking? Is he talking? Uh, is he, what? Wait, what? He knows what's going on in my heart. He knows what I'm thinking in my head. Uh Oh, verse nine, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hold on one second. Jesus has a point. It is easy to say your sins are forgiven. You can't verify it. You can't prove it. It's not like he all of a sudden, you know, his hair becomes white or something. You know, it's like, oh, his sins are forgiven. Nobody knows. So it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. What's a whole lot harder to say is to a paralyzed man is get up, pick up your mat and walk home. You know, the guy who just got carried in and lowered through the roof. And so Jesus says this. He said to the paralytic, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And I'm sure that they hadn't. They, you know, the town paralytic, the, everybody knows he's paralyzed. He's never walked. And, and sure enough, Jesus, just by saying the word, the man gets up, picks up his mat, and struts out of the house. I wonder what, you know, those guys were thinking then. Well, see, they don't leave Jesus alone. In fact, they show up in every story in chapter 2. Um, in, in verses 13 through 17, we see how uh, Jesus calls a, another man to follow him. In chapter 1, we saw how he called Simon and Andrew, James and John to follow him as his disciples. Well, here in chapter 2, he's going to call another man named Levi. And Levi was a tax collector, a toll collector. Uh, in those days, Israel was divided into three regions, and each region had a different governor. And to pass from one region to another on the main roads, they would have a toll collector's booth set up. And Levi was a toll collector. Now, toll and tax collectors were hated and despised in Jesus' day uh, because they would cheat their own people and they were working for the Romans. So they were seen as traitorous or treasonous cheats. And when you are a traitor, when you are a treasonous cheat, you don't have many friends. And in fact, your friends are people just like you, the lowlights, the, 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 dredges, uh, the dregs of society. Uh, and so uh, this guy Levi is sitting at the toll collector's booth and Jesus comes walking by. Look at verse 15. 
While Jesus was having, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus says to him, follow me. And Levi gets up and follows him. And then it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Now, hold on. It says sinners there in, in, in uh, quotation marks. Uh, that is a, a word uh, that uh, in, probably included prostitutes. Like I said, when you are a tax collector and you are hated by your own people, you don't have a lot of friends except other tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes, oh my. So you've got Jesus uh, has been invited to Levi's house and he is going to hang out with Levi and his friends. Verse 16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why isn't he hanging out with us? After all, we're the religious people. We're the good people. We're the, we're the righteous people. Shouldn't the Messiah, the Savior, the one you claim as the Savior, the Messiah, shouldn't he be hanging out with us? Why is he eating with the dregs of society? Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Hmm. I have a question for the American church. Why is it that as churches in this country, we seem to really try to attract just good people? You know, we, we, we really try and, and do everything we can to attract people who are already convinced. Attract people who are already converted. People who look like us and act like us. People who are good like us. You know, good people. That's who we want in our churches. Yet Jesus was rejected by the good people around him. And he attracted the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. He attracted those who were far from God and brought them near to God. Shouldn't we be doing the same thing as a church Shouldn't the church in America be doing the same thing? Reaching out to those who feel lost? Reaching out to those who feel far from God? Reaching out to those who think God would never want anything to do with me? Whatever their sin is? Shouldn't we be reaching out to sinners and bringing sinners close to God? That's enough of that soapbox. So we move on. Now in those days, people fasted. Good Jews fasted twice a week. The, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Uh, the followers of John the Baptist tw fasted twice a week. And so the, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees want to know why Jesus' disciples weren't fasting. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Fasting in those days was associated with mourning, not M-O-R, but M-O-U-R, mourning and grieving. It was a sign of repentance of sin. It was being convicted of your own sinfulness, and you would fast as a way of grieving and mourning over your sins. So, you've got uh, Jesus, uh, who is with his disciples, and his disciples are not fasting, they're not grieving, they're not mourning. Instead, they're celebrating, and Jesus compares his coming to that of a wedding feast. Wedding feasts in those days lasted a week, and it was a party, it was a celebration. And so when they come to Jesus and say, why aren't your disciples fasting? Jesus says, we're having a party. I'm here. And we're going to party while I'm here. We're going to celebrate while I'm here. When I'm taken from them, on that day, he's pointing to the cross already. 
On that day, they will mourn and they will grieve and they will fast. But for now, join the party. And I love this idea that hanging out with Jesus is a party, that it's a celebration. So many churches think that hanging out with Jesus is, okay, I've got to be a Christian, I guess. I've got to go to church. No, it should be a celebration. When you walk into this place, it should be in a spirit of expectation of what is God going to do today? Whose life is God going to touch today? Whose uh, destiny is God going to change today? Are you ready to celebrate? Are you ready to, I mean, let's have a Jesus party every week. You know, even at 9.30 in the morning, we can have a Jesus party. And we should. Because Jesus brings the party. And hanging out with Jesus is the greatest thing in the world. Not a time to be dour-faced and, oh, man, I just... Uh, no, this is a celebration of the one who gave his life for us, of the one who sacrificed his life for our forgiveness and salvation. That we get to go to heaven, like, for real. Like, that, that thought should get you out of bed every morning. I am one day closer to going to heaven. I am one step closer to stepping into Jesus' arms. I am one step, and I get the privilege of knowing him in this life and walking with him in this life. And he brings fulfillment and purpose and joy and love into my life like I've never known. Are you excited about following Jesus? Are you excited about being a Christian? Are you excited about him being in your life and changing your life and your eternal destiny? It is a party to be with Jesus. So let's act like it. If that joy in our lives that comes from knowing Jesus were to get out of us some way, if it were to bubble over some way, I am convinced that the people around you would look at you like you were nuts. How can you be so excited and how can you be so uh, pumped up and full of energy and excitement all the time? Because I know Jesus and Jesus changed my life. Because I know Jesus, and he's taking me to heaven. That this life isn't all that there is. And I get to go to heaven someday. And that is the greatest thought in the world. Knowing that even in spite of my sinfulness, and even in spite of my uh, shortcomings and failures, that God still loved me enough to send his son to die for me. And now I get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. I'm not perfect. Far from it. But the one who is perfect loved me and wants to spend forever with me. You too. And all the people jumped up and shouted and screamed in celebration. No? 9.30? I know. Okay. All right. All right. So it's all good. It's all good. So Jesus tells them that with the bridegroom, we're not going to fast. We're going to celebrate. And then he moves on. And then uh, one of the Sabbath days, uh, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait, wait, before we do that. Um, he, he gives another illustration uh, of, of what, uh, how Jesus was doing new things. Um, look at verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. 
No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Wineskins were made from animal skins. They would sew them together really tight, and they would pour wine into them. Well, the older the animal skins got, they would start to get brittle and, and dry. And if you poured new wine into them, the fermenting process, the fermentation process, would burst those old wineskins because they couldn't expand. They weren't supple. But the new wineskins, uh, which were still moist and soft, uh, when the uh, wine would ferment, it would continue to expand the, the wineskin, but it wouldn't burst. And so Jesus' point is, I am doing new things. That's what Jesus does. He does new things, including everything he did in the book of Mark. It's all new stuff. So Jesus does new things, and he can do new things in your life too. And then we read uh, in, in the next passage about how the disciples uh, and Jesus were walking through a field one day and they got hungry, so they started to pick grain. The only problem was it was on a Sabbath. And you weren't supposed to do any work on a Sabbath, including harvesting grain. So picking a head of grain, well, that's working. Not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And, and the Pharisees teach the law. Everywhere Jesus goes, they're like, they're watching him. We are watching you, Jesus. You are in our line of sight. We are watching you. And so, like, could you imagine just everywhere you go, there's these little guys just kind of pop up out of the ground like meerkats. Like, oh, what are you doing? I see you picking that grain. And that's what exactly what happens. Pharisees said to him, look, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, verse 25, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave them to, uh, some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And Jesus's point is that the rules that God gave, the commands that God gave to his people, were not for God's benefit. They were for the people's benefit. That the things that God tells us to do in his word, the things he tells us not to do in his word, that's not for God's benefit. God is holy and perfect, never sins, never does the wrong thing. That's for our benefit. Because God knows, as our Heavenly Father, what we need and, and how to protect us best. And so he gives us the rules and commandments in order to be protected from the things that will destroy our lives. That's why he gives us rules and commandments, to protect us. And the reason he does that is because he loves us, and he wants what's best for us. Have you ever thought about that, that God wants what's best for you? And as your Heavenly Father, he cares for you and loves you, and that's why he says, do this, don't do that. It's not to ruin your fun. It's not to make you a downer at parties. Remember, we're having a party. We're having a Jesus party. He says, don't do this or do these things because it's going to make your life better. So what does all this mean? Remember, Jesus is unexpected. Everything that he does is unexpected. I'm here to tell you right now, the unexpected Jesus shatters expectations. The unexpected Jesus shatters expectations. You may have expectations of who Jesus is. You may have expectations of what Jesus is like or what Jesus does. But I'm here to tell you, the unexpected Jesus shatters expectations. He did it for all the people around him, for those teachers of the law and the religious leaders of his day. They expected the Messiah to be one way, and he was completely different. They expected the Savior to be one way, he was completely different. They expected the Lord to be one way, and he was completely different. The unexpected Jesus shatters expectations. And maybe you have expectations of Jesus. Maybe you, have expect, uh, maybe you expect him to be one way, but you're going to find out that he's something completely different. So my question is, do you expect 
Jesus to be judgmental and condemning? Do you expect Jesus to be a rule maker or, and a stern taskmaster? Do you expect Jesus to only want holy and righteous people? Do you expect Jesus to reject you because of your past mistakes? Do you expect Jesus to turn away from you because of your present circumstances, your present situation? Well, I'm here to tell you right now, Jesus didn't come to burden you with a load of rules like bricks on your back. Jesus didn't come for self-righteous people. Jesus didn't come to condemn you to an eternity in hell. Jesus didn't come to reject you or abandon you. No. Jesus came to lighten your load and give rest to your soul. Jesus came for sinners of every kind and to forgive sins of every kind. Jesus came to save you, not condemn you. Jesus came to die so that your sins could be forgiven. And if you will put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you will believe in him and turn away from sin and repentance and confess your faith in him and be baptized, God will wash away every one of your sins. That's why he died. That's why he came. And he came to give you something. Jesus gives hope instead of hell. Peace instead of punishment. Love instead of labor. Salvation instead of condemnation. This is the Jesus who came for you and for me. He is the unexpected Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, the unexpected Jesus is the real Jesus. You may have expectations of who he is and what he does and what he's like. And I'm here to tell you that the, the real Jesus shatters expectations. He's going to take your expectations of him. He's going to flip them upside down and turn them all around. He's going to flip the script. You may think, you know, well, Jesus only, he only wants holy and righteous people. He only wants good people, people who go to church every time the doors are open. He only wants good people uh, who, you know, uh, don't drink, don't cuss, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. No. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for you. Jesus is for me. Jesus is for everybody. Your expectations of him, well, he's going to shatter those. Because he doesn't do what we expect him to do. He does what he came to do. Which is to change lives for the glory of God. My challenge for you today, if you haven't put your faith and trust, if you're not following Jesus yet, start following him. But if you are following Jesus, don't perpetuate the stereotype and the expectations that people have of Jesus and his followers. Don't perpetuate those. Remember this message about the unexpected Jesus because the people you come into contact with this week, your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, your friends, the people you run across this week, the people you come into contact with this week, have expectations of Jesus. Don't feed into their negative expectations or stereotypes of who Jesus is and what his followers are like. Instead, shatter those expectations the way Jesus does. So that when somebody expects you to, to come down hard on them and be condemning and judgmental because, I don't know, I've heard Christians do that from time to time. When people expect judgment and condemnation, show them the real Jesus. The one who says, does anyone accuse you? Does anyone condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
Does anyone love you? Well, Jesus loves you. And because Jesus loves you, I'm going to love you too. Shatter those expectations that people have of Jesus. Shatter those expectations that people have of Christians. Shatter those stereotypes. And if we will do that, I believe that we will experience the kind of uh, following, the kind of mob, uh, mobbed mentality that Jesus experienced. That if we will be like him, if we will demonstrate his love, his unconditional love, if we will show people that he is the one who shatters expectations, if we will do that, we will not be able to contain all of the people. Because if you notice, everywhere Jesus goes, people follow. And then not just a couple, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people gather around Jesus because they want to be around him. If we will be like Jesus, people will gather around us because they're going to find the truth about him. And he is going to change their lives the way that he has changed ours.